2: The story of the 54th Massachusetts was immortalized in the movie Glory and is widely known. Listeners to this show know that the battle at Fort Wagner was preceded by another battle featuring African-American troops at Port Hudson, Louisiana, in 1863. What few people know about is that there was a third battle involving black U.S. soldiers in the summer of 1863 at Milliken's Bend, Louisiana, near Vicksburg. We'll find out why that battle was once much better known, what happened there, and why it's been forgotten. From Linda Barnacle, author of Millican's Bend, A Civil War Battle in History and Memory. That's tonight on Civil War Talk Radio.
1: Streaming live, the leader in Internet Talk Radio. VoiceAmerica.com
0: Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World,
1: or Android Market. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to Prokopovichg at ecu. dot edu. That's P R O K O P O W I C Z G at ecu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
2: And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the third floor of the Brewster Building, here on the campus of East Carolina University, where students are allowed to acknowledge the Almighty in their uh, graduation statements if they want to. Uh, But I'm not... Expressing policy of the University of North Carolina or East Carolina University or any other constituent campus. I'm not speaking For the institution nor does it speak for me and likewise our guest will Speak solely for herself this evening as we always do on Civil War talk radio uh, Where we are preceded by commercials for shows with names like sex out loud and all I can think is hey my mother is listening for which I should add Happy Mother's Day uh, coming up this uh, Sunday. It's the beginning of May 2014. So, Happy Mother's Day to all mothers uh, who are listening and mothers of all listeners. Uh, and Mom, the card is in the mail. Hopefully, we'll get there by uh, Saturday. Uh, but the mail from Greenville, North Carolina, you never know how long that will take. Uh, here in Greenville, it is a beautiful, uh, pleasant, Spring evening, as was last night, I went to uh, J.H. Rose High School to watch the Rampants uh, women's soccer team play their last home game of the year, Uh, my daughter's last game as a senior, and being as she is my youngest daughter, the last time I get to go there and rail at the coaches and otherwise uh, do the things that uh, soccer parents do. Uh, it was fun to watch. Uh, the team won and is set up for uh, tonight's or tomorrow night's season finale and away game at New Bern, uh, where, if, to keep it relevant, Ambrose Burnside landed troops in 1862, uh, and where the team will, will play a game that, if they win, will give them second place in the league and a playoff spot, something that Rose uh, Girls Soccer has not experienced in living memory. So it's a big game, and and uh, looking forward to it very much. Uh, whether they win or lose, though, it's been a great season and a great uh, four years of following the team, and a couple of years with the older daughter before that. I put a video of uh, a clip or two of the game on YouTube, but I've, I've hidden them away because I don't want strangers looking at, at the team. Uh And if I say it on this show, being the most popular show on Voice America, it's possible millions of people would then log in and it would go viral. We don't want that. Uh, We do want people to check out www.impedimentsofwar.org, where Mark Gaffney will tell you uh, by posting what's going on on this show, including our upcoming shows. Next week, Bjorn Skapsen of the Abraham Lincoln Bookshop in Chicago, and also a historian in his own right, will be with us to talk about various activities. Uh, the following week, Michael C. C. Adams uh, with a new book on the dark side of the Civil War. Uh, the following week, we will have a show. I've been saying there'll be no show in the week of Memorial Day. I'll be dashing off to Bowdoin College to witness older daughter's graduation, but we will get a show in on uh, Wednesday, May 28th, Randall Fuller, author of From Battlefields Rising, will talk about Civil War literature. And then on June 4th, uh, Rachel Sheldon, author of Washington Brotherhood, uh, will discuss the politicians in Washington before the Civil War, North and South, how they got along before they started killing one another. And finally, we will end the season June 11th uh, a little bit early because of, of travel plans. Our guest on June 11th will be uh, Sergeant Major Marvin Nicholson of Battery B, Second Light Artillery, USCTA. Uh, he is a reenactor uh, from a uh, an artillery battery of uh, United States Colored Troops. And we'll talk about the ins and outs of reenacting from that particular angle Uh, on June 11th. That will bring us to a close because, uh, as mentioned, I will be on the road, including uh, in June this year, doing once again the uh, hallowed ground uh, Civil War tour uh, sponsored by or produced by uh, Matterhorn Travel. If you're interested in seeing a bunch of Civil War sites in Virginia, uh, staying at some nice hotels, writing a really... uh, Really nice bus, I will say. Uh, We'll be doing that from June 22nd to June 29th and uh, contact Matterhorn Travel. Uh, There are still places on the bus. So if you have not heard my voice often enough, you can listen to me talk about the Civil War for a whole week. And better still, you can talk back and and I can learn from you for a change, uh, which I know I would enjoy. So uh, that's coming up. Uh, I've got a few other speaking engagements in the near future, uh, but... I don't want to take up the whole show. We'll save those uh, for next week. Uh, I will say that Crossing the Mailbox Today was a new book that we're not discussing this evening, but uh, I thought it was interesting. The title is Gateway to the Confederacy, uh, New Perspectives on the Chickamauga and Chattanooga Campaigns, 1862-1863. The editors are Evan C. Jones and Wiley Sword, and it includes... uh, Essays from a number of people who've been on the show, uh, Dave Powell, Russell Bonds, Craig Simons, Caroline Janey, and one by my favorite person on the show, which would be me. Uh, So I get to see what I think about the Chattanooga campaign uh, that Don Carlos Buell conducted in 1862. And if you want to... Uh, take a look at that. It's published by LSU Press, just came out, and I'm looking forward to reading my co-authors' essays, more than my own certainly, and uh, finding out a little bit more about Chattanooga uh, Gateway to the Confederacy. So that's out there. You can buy uh, that book or any book by clicking through the Impediments of War website and going to Amazon, and that sends a little Uh, Change to to the website, which they can use. You can also donate when you get there at the PayPal donation button. Well, enough news, lots going on in the Civil War talk radio world, but tonight we go back to the world of 1863 and the battle at Millican's Bend, uh, a battle lost for, for a while to the mists of time and now brought back to us by Linda Barnacle, who has written about this. Uh, Ms. Barnacle, are you there?
3: Yes, thank you. Uh,
2: welcome to the show.
3: Thank you so very much.
2: It, it's uh, good to have you. Um, you are, according to the uh, uh, dust jacket here, an archivist and freelance writer. I can't think of anything that would require more courage than, than being a freelance writer uh, in, in any economy. How do you do it? <laughs>
3: uh a bit at a time basically <laughs> and and in fact a lot of a lot of what I do um it, it does not pay the bills because it's often for scholarly uh outlets such as uh the Tennessee Historical uh, Society magazine and and other things like that so but uh Millikan's Bend is my first full length book
2: and and I Noticing it's also published by LSU Press, same as right. the uh, the book I was mentioning earlier. They are one of the leaders up there, with uh, neck and neck with UNC Press as the leaders in in Civil War publishing uh, among academic presses. So, uh, uh, a good place for you to be, certainly. Yeah. The the, uh, the listeners to the show know I'll I'll often ask people about their their day job and what they do, and it's surprising how many people write Civil War books who are not. Uh, not professors but you you're an archivist you have uh academic training you're you're not just a hobbyist i gather uh when it comes to historical research
3: well i i would i would say that's true i i i do not have a phd in history but but um my my uh one of my masters i have two masters one in library science uh with archives training And the other in English, and it was really my English background that helped me kind of learn how to read and evaluate texts. And um, my archives background, of course, is what my professional life is, and so that certainly helped me in regards to uh, my research and being able to find sources and pursue different leads and so forth.
2: So, where are you? Where do you practice archival?
3: I, I work. Kinds. I work presently at, in the special collections department at the Nashville Public Library in Tennessee.
2: Excellent. So, uh, listeners in the area will know know where you are and, right. and uh, come come by and get you to sign the book. Hopefully. <laughs> yes. uh, so So, uh, what what got you into this uh, this topic of Millican's Bend? This this obscure skirmish, really not not even two thousand troops on each side in eighteen sixty three. Most tiny skirmishes are long forgotten. What got you interested in this one?
3: Well, it all started uh, with a single sentence, and it was on a post-war broadside that a friend showed me relating to Battery G, 2nd Illinois Light Artillery. And uh, the statement on this broadside said, Corridan Heath, which was one of the men in the artillery battery, Corridan Heath, murdered by the rebels... July 1862, and uh, that intrigued me, because I thought, you know, it's wartime, there's an awful lot of people dying, Uh, why call it murder? And um, so I started with the basics, you know, getting his service and pension records, and and that was when I found out that he uh, had become a captain in the 9th Louisiana Infantry, african descent which would later become known as the colored troops um and uh he was captured at Milliken's bend which happened on june 7th 1863 so they had that information wrong and um for a long time i really didn't know what happened to him i, I some days it looked like he really had been executed some days it looked like that that was just pure rumor Um, But eventually, after a lot of digging, I did find a document that uh, convinced me anyway. Uh, There was a uh, brief investigation, uh, there was testimony taken, and so forth, and and it it does appear that he was executed for being a white officer leading black troops, and the charge uh, was uh, leading a slave insurrection.
2: Well, that's to the extent people have heard anything about Milliken's Bend, usually... Uh, that's something that comes up, the idea of a massacre there, and I definitely want to talk with you about that, but I thought we might go back to the the first chapters of your book, which uh, which I found fascinating because uh, you begin, before the war, establishing, uh, I'll, I'll call it the, the temperature of racial feeling in uh, the Trans-Mississippi and in Louisiana and Texas. Uh, where Louisiana, where the battle happened, Texas, where the Confederate troops came from, uh, and you don't mince words as to how uh, how the local population felt uh, before the war about uh, uh, about race as as a concept. Uh, can you share something some of that?
3: Sure, sure. Um, one of the 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 first part of the book um, looks at Race and the fear of slave insurrection, and the Southern response to that fear of slave insurrection, uh, and and it I base it strictly on the sources that I found, um, and in fact I rely very heavily in the earliest chapters on Charles Dew's book, Apostles of Disunion, uh, and that book looks at what the secession commissioners. When when the states first began seceding, um, and there were a number of states that were still kind of on the fence, um, the states that, that were the first to secede sent out secession commissioners to try to persuade the other states of the South to secede and join the Confederacy. And when you look at the statements that are being made, in that context, and when you look at the ordinances of secession that was passed, uh, particularly I look at Texas, of course, um, there's no question that in the Southern mind at that time, this is 1860-61, the election of Lincoln, just, just that, this is before Fort Sumter takes place, the election of Lincoln was essentially a declaration of war against the South because Lincoln was going to incite the slaves to rebel. And, you know, just prior to Lincoln's election, there had also been uh, John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry. And so all of this comes together, and um, what really helped me kind of understand this for myself was to think about how uh, particularly in the days after nine eleven, how we responded to terrorism, and you know, before nine eleven, you see a suitcase at a train station, and yeah, it's a suitcase at a train station. But after nine eleven, everything changes, and now that suitcase at a train station is a bomb. That's the first thought you have, and to me, that is somewhat analogous to the way the South viewed. Uh, you know, the events of 59, 60, and all of a sudden, you know, there were insurrections lurking around every corner, and so there was ta- a great l- deal l- of paranoia.
2: We're going to interrupt here and take a short break and come back sure. with that point that point uh, and talk about how the paranoia spread. Uh, we'll do that in just a moment. I'm talking today with Linda Barnicle, author of Milliken's Bend, The Civil War Battle in History and Memory. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, And this is Civil War Talk Radio.
1: Streaming live, the leader in Internet Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com.
0: the Apple iTunes App Store, Blackberry App World, or Android Market.
1: Ask the experts. Call toll free right now 1 866 472 5787. And ask our All Star team to answer your questions. That's 1 866 472 5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com Listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to Prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's PROKOPOWICZG at ecu.edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
2: And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Linda Barnicle, author of Milliken's Bend, A Civil War Battle in History and Memory. It's a story of an engagement in the summer of 1863 near Vicksburg, uh, not largely written about. Uh, Indeed, this is the first full-length book uh, to study it, but one that involved African-American Union soldiers and thus had greater significance. For its uh, size, than than it otherwise would have, and we were talking at the end of the first segment about the uh, climate uh, within the South before the Civil War, the the fear of slave rebellion, and uh, Linda, you made an interesting comparison to the the paranoia uh, or to be more polite, heightened sensitivity mm-hmm. uh, toward the possibility of terrorism after 9/11 in the United States when. As you said, an ordinary bag or package or suitcase suddenly, if left unattended, might look like a bomb to someone. Uh, you really portray an, an atmosphere, not so much of, of hatred of uh, black people by white people in the South, but of fear, of, of the sense that slaveholders uh, lived in fear that, that there would be uh, a rebellion, and, uh, and they act on this. Uh, yes. Yeah. The, the, talk talk about that, if you would.
3: Well, I, I look, uh, especially in, in Texas, um, and this now is, is uh, two major events that take place in Texas. In 1860, there's something known as the Texas Troubles. And these are uh, fires that break out in the summer of 1860 uh, at various places. And they seem to break out almost simultaneously in dallas and and elsewhere. And the reaction at that time is it's abolitionists. They have come uh, to uh, you know light these fires, destroy the town, and have the slaves rise. And uh, it it turns out now now it's it's believed that, uh, It was based on, um, the the fires happened because of prairie matches, which were new matches that uh, had just been invented, and they were unstable in a Texas summer. And that was what prompted all of these different fires to happen around the region. Um, So that was one aspect of where the paranoia comes in. Uh, Of course, Texas isn't that far from Kansas. You had the, you know, bleeding Kansas era just before this time. And then also, uh, in 1862, there's the Great Hanging at Gainesville, Texas, and uh, over 40 men are executed there because it's believed that they are Unionists. Um, Richard McCaslin's book on this subject, he comes to the conclusion that really most of them just wanted to stay home to protect their families, because this was on the northern border of the state, uh, not far from Indian Territory. Uh, And so, really, it was just a resistance to conscription uh, more than true Union sympathies. And so, those are two major factors that I look at because the Confederates who fought at Millican's Bend were from Texas. And, in fact, they were from many of these same places where uh, these incidents took place.
2: So, you've got a a culture of vigilantism and... and, uh... Uh, insecurity and uh, suspicion uh, that the, the gives us a sense of where these these soldiers are, where they're coming from, what they're accustomed to, and I, I will say, when I was reading your book, uh, you know, lots of battle books get written, and when you open a battle book, and the first chapters about the West Point career of the commanding general on each side, you. Know, you tend to roll the eyes and stifle a yawn and say, I think I've read this 40 times before. But when the first chapter is about how unstable prairie matches uh, set off fires that are mistaken for abolitionist terrorism, and the book is actually about a battle in, in Louisiana in 63, it piques one's interest, and uh, it, it it really is uh, a great approach for, for Showing how otherwise unconnected things are, are closely connected. Thank you. So so, so we get these troops going uh, to uh, you know enlisting from Texas and, and serving in Louisiana. Uh, the 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 giant prairie match of the Civil War that goes off in, in 1862 is the Emancipation Proclamation. Right. And and that uh, uh, certainly puts a new uh, spin on things in in Louisiana and in. Mississippi where uh, this campaign takes place Uh, tell us about what what how that worked out on the ground there
3: yes well one of the things that's important about uh, the context of uh, Louisiana and Mississippi right there on the Mississippi River near Vicksburg is that this was cotton country and it's exactly what we think of when we think of the Old South Uh, many planters had very large slave holdings in that region Uh, And many of the counties and parishes uh, were 75% or more blacks. And, of course, the majority of those were slaves. And so when the war comes and the white men of military age go off to war, uh, of course that proportion skews even higher to black slaves. And that, again, feeds into that whole paranoia, and that's all even before you get to the emancipation, So once the emancipation is issued in uh, September of 62, the Confederate government in Richmond uh, really tries to up the ante and figure out a way, how can we stop this from happening? Uh, Some of them have an attitude of, oh, you must be crazy because you're setting slaves free in areas that the Union doesn't even control. Um, But many of them take it quite seriously, again, as a, as a call for slave insurrection. And that becomes even more heightened when you reach January of 63, when the final Emancipation Proclamation is issued, uh, which not only uh, you know, purports to free the slaves in Southern territory, but also directly specifies that blacks may serve in the Union Army. And so that, that is the giant prairie match that goes off. And as a result of that, the Confederate Congress actually, uh, they debated a lot, but eventually they passed a law that says that white officers in command of black troops should be executed on the charge of inciting slave insurrection. And black enlisted men uh, should be returned to slavery or dealt with under the laws of the state where they are taken, which, again, on the charge of slave insurrection, the penalty is death.
2: Now at this point, we're seeing the the southerners uh, as slaveholders as, as soldiers in a very bad light uh, and I know when I'm teaching civil war to students, uh, they are resistant uh, and justly so to the bad south good north uh, uh, paradigm uh, as a, a gross oversimplification. Uh, you make it quite clear that uh, the Union Army in this area, northeast Louisiana and uh, uh, Mississippi near Vicksburg, are not good guys either. Uh, and uh, at least the slaves don't view them that way uh, in terms of the treatment that they get. Uh, how? What does the army uh, talk about? How the army tries to recruit regiments or what they do with the, yeah. the, the slaves they find?
3: Well, it's it's. But uh, by this point, we're now in around April of '63 and uh recruiting is beginning uh in earnest in that region in the union army and um it's a, It's a very chaotic situation for everyone involved on all sides but uh with the union army there's a number of factors at work uh, i'll I'll stick to the recruiting aspect of it, but there's a, as you know there's other things that are taking place as well. Uh, Many of the former slaves are simply impressed into the Union Army. Uh, The white officers are going out to recruit, and they just basically march on a plantation, call all the men out, and march them off. Um, uh, Another thing that's happening is these white Union officers um, will not receive pay at their new grade until their regiment gets recruited to strength. So that means they're going to take everybody and anybody because they are in a hurry to get their new rank with its new pay. Um, and so there's just a number of factors. That's, that's just a couple of issues. Um, but then there's also situations where uh, you have white Yankee troops who are not happy. They're just as upset about the Emancipation Proclamation as the Southerners are. And um, some of them desert and some of them just take it out on any of the former slaves that they happen to run into, and sometimes they even go out looking for trouble. So um, it's a very uh, chaotic situation, and, and uh, really there's, there's very few people who are truly the African-American friends at that point.
2: You, you describe an incident in one uh, one white regiment where, Uh, After a series of uh, abuses of of black soldiers, finally the officer uh, in charge has an offending white soldier punished by being whipped by black soldiers. Uh, Symbolically, it sounds like it was not really a severe punishment, but uh, that set off a firestorm.
3: Oh, absolutely.
2: Uh, uh, That that was... uh, the, the depth of racism among the Union soldiers was, is, is revealed by something like that. Yes,
3: and, and these uh, white soldiers who were, were being whipped by, by the black troops, and that's under the orders of the commander of the black troops, uh, these, these white soldiers who were the perpetrators um, kicked the man, tried to strangle him, raped some women. I mean, it's really awful stuff. And, um, you know, I, I can only imagine that the, the blacks in the region had to wonder what, you know, what the Union had to offer them because sometimes it didn't seem like very much. And, in fact, it, at one point you have an abolitionist who's with the Union Army, and, in fact, it's that same officer, Isaac Shepard, who has the, the soldier whipped. Um, at one point he says that, you know, and, and this, is, this man isn't a true abolitionist. He says, the way we treat these people, meaning the former slaves, makes me wonder if maybe they might not have been better off with their masters. And that, to me, is just a profound indictment of the Union troops in the area. The fact that an abolitionist would would make a statement like that.
2: Well... Eventually, they do succeed in organizing uh, some black regiments, uh, but they they don't. Uh, well, well, how does that how does that go? When, once they've got troops, uh, they've got men brought in. Um, there there was no boot camp in the Civil War. Uh, regiments basically trained themselves. Uh, how did that work out with these regiments?
3: Well, at the time that uh, Milliken's Bend occurred, in in April you have the white officers who are appointed. Then they go out and recruit among the former slaves. That takes place mostly in May. And then early June is Milliken's Bend. So there's not much time for training. The officers are learning their duties because a lot of them had jumped several grades. You have sergeants becoming captains and privates becoming lieutenants. And uh, so everybody is learning Uh, because the recruitment is an ongoing process, uh, none of the men have had more than, say, a month, month and a half of training. Uh, And you have a lot of people who are are just coming in. Uh, There's a great deal of trouble with getting adequate supplies, with uniforms, with weaponry. Uh, They are given... Basically, third-rate weapons—Austrian rifle muskets, which were already known at that point to be very poor weapons and, and quite dangerous to the person who used them—and um, so it's it's really a mess. And they there is an effort to attempt to give the men uh, some target practice. And the results of that, uh, in the words of one officer, is that they couldn't hit the broadside of a cotton gin. And so uh, it's it's not. Not really a, a very encouraging situation uh, at the time that the battle occurs.
2: So, when the battle occurs, the uh, to to give it in shorthand a, a Confederate force of a few regiments, uh, these Texans that we've been talking about, uh, decide they will attack this encampment of mostly black units on the banks of the Mississippi. Uh, strategically, there's no point to it. Grant is not using this area to draw supplies from. He's he's already, this is, you know, our listeners know the story of the Vicksburg campaign. Grant has landed south of the city, marched uh, inland, and then doubled back and won a series of battles and laid siege to Vicksburg. And now he's reestablished his supply line north of the city. Uh, so he doesn't need, uh, there's nothing at Millican's Bend for the Confederates to get. There's no line to cut. Yet they decide they'll attack, and you've got a body of, it sounds like, completely untrained and unready Union troops waiting for them, or, or about to be surprised by them. Uh, is that a fair construction of, of what we're about to see?
3: Yes, yes. Um, there uh, was some inclination, that, uh, some hints that Confederates were in the area, um, but it it was... Uh, not, there was not a lot of warning, maybe just a day or so um, and the the confederate troops were uh, had just found out a few days prior to the actual battle that grant's supply lines had had changed, and um, it was felt that uh, they still had to make some attempt to at least make a show of trying to come to rescue Vicksburg, um, but also they were they were out to break up these. Uh, camps of instruction or, you know, in their view, insurrection.
2: So when the battle starts, it's, it's partly for symbolic value, but the, the deaths will be very real. We'll take another short break and come back and talk about what happened on the day of battle at Millican's Bend. Our guest Today is Linda Barnacle, author of Milliken's Bend, A Civil War Battle in History and Memory. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio.
1: Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com.
0: Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market.
1: Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio.
2: And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. Talking today with Linda Barnacle, author of Milliken's Bend: A Civil War Battle in History and Memory. And we've been talking about the uh, the Black regiments camped at Milliken's Bend on the Mississippi, and the Confederate attack on them, uh, June 1863. Uh, so, Linda, did in bare outline. Uh, what happened in the battle? How? Why, uh, anything to distinguish it from uh, one of the other hundreds of skirmishes that took place in the Civil War?
3: Right. Well, uh, a brigade of Texans attacked roughly a brigade of African-American troops. Um, and there were two levees that the black troops were posted behind. Um, the Confederates came across. They basically got on the Union flank and rolled up their line. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, these uh, black troops were very new, and so therefore they were very poorly trained. There was a lot of hand-to-hand combat, uh, particularly at that first levy when the two forces met, um, and a lot of that was simply because the black troops could only get off maybe one round if they were lucky, um, and then it became hand-to-hand, uh, bayonets, musket butts, uh, and, and very vicious, both sides talk about the, the brutal nature of that hand-to-hand combat. Uh, the Union forces are forced back. Um, about that time, and this is quite literally on the river, uh, about that time two Union gunboats come up, the Choctaw and the Lexington. Mm-hmm. The Choctaw begins throwing uh, 100-pound shells into the Confederate lines, and this essentially halts the Confederate attack, um, and eventually they they withdraw later in the day, uh, realizing that they, you know, there's not going to be a whole lot they can do against those gunboats. Um, and so that that's the that's the short version. Um, there are uh, immediately uh, there are accusations that the Confederates. Sh- came on with shouts of no quarter and that they, uh, you know, shot down surrendering black troops. Um, I don't put a lot of faith in that. (laughs) I don't think that's exactly what happened uh, in that regard. Um, And both sides thought they won. The Confederates thought they won because their their initial assault had been very successful. They caused the Union line to break. The Union troops thought they had won because ultimately they still held their ground just by their fingernails, but they were still hanging on. Um, And so, uh, you know, both sides seemed to see see it as their own victory.
2: Now, you said, and you talk about this at some length in the book, uh, there were allegations of massacres of prisoners, and certainly at other places in the war, at Fort Pillow, at the crater, at uh, other incidents. There are are known examples of massacres of black prisoners, but you did not find that at Millican's Bend.
3: I did not. I found a lot of statements that said that. (laughs) But I Mm -hmm. did not find anything that uh, really seemed uh, to indicate that it actually happened. Um, And in fact, uh, some of the black troops that were taken prisoner were returned to slavery. Um, and others appear to have been treated as legitimate prisoners of war because they end up coming back to their regiments uh, at the end of the war, and it's it's that's one of the lingering mysteries. There's a number of questions that you know are still out there, but that, and that's one of them uh, because it, all all their records say is you know, returned to regiment after war from being held in Texas.
2: So, so...
3: it's a bit of a mystery.
2: It, it really is. Now, The uh, so black soldiers were not massacred, but the, the item that got you triggered into looking at this was the description of the murder of a white officer. Uh, what about the fate of the white officers who were captured?
3: That's right. Well, uh, there were a total of three white officers that were captured at Millican's Bend. Um, two of them Uh, do appear to have been executed. And that execution actually took place at Monroe, Louisiana, which is some distance away from Millican's Bend. Millican's Bend is on the Mississippi River. Monroe is sort of in the center part of of northern Louisiana. And um, one of the officers did manage to be exchanged uh, as a prisoner, and that was because he was still wearing his old uniform, from the infantry regiment that he had originally served with, and he just said, you know, hey, don't look at me. I'm, I was just here at Millican's Bend and joined in, and, you know, I'm not really an officer with the colored troops, although he was. <laughs> and so that's how he got out of it. Um, but the other two men were, were executed and buried in a shallow grave in Monroe.
2: Now, you point out that the the black troops were not massacred, some were taken prisoner, uh, but the policy of the Confederacy at this point had had changed. You quote some generals telling their troops essentially don't don't embarrass us by bringing back black prisoners. Uh, you You cite an example of a nearby battle where uh, over a hundred black soldiers are captured. And now they're too many to execute. I mean, to to simply kill them in cold blood would be too obvious. You can kill them in battle while they're trying to surrender. Right. But exactly. once once they've surrendered, it's it, it's even slaveholders don't want to just line them up and shoot them.
3: Right. Right. Well, and 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 you know this. That's also you know especially if you have a hundred uh, you know former slaves. Well, that's that's money. You know, and mm. uh, so. Uh, and at that time, especially in the Trans-Mississippi, um, you know, they need, they need labor. You know, this is uh, summer. There's going to be harvest in a couple months. So, so there's a number of factors there that kind of mitigate, mitigate against that. Um, and uh, there is a lot of kind of confusion within the Confederate chain of command in terms of what, what should be done. Because, again, this is an entirely new situation for everyone. Uh, having black troops in the Union Army. And um, even though the Confederate Congress had passed uh, the laws that we mentioned earlier, uh, there is kind of the convenient way to avoid this situation would be to attack without quarter and to kill them on the battlefield. Uh, And that way you don't have to worry about that kind of a problem as to what to do with them as prisoners.
2: Now, this does have all kinds of repercussions. You point out uh, the use of black troops leads to the breakdown in the exchange of prisoners, uh, but this is also one reason why Milliken's Bend was a well-known engagement for a time. Both sides uh, want to talk about it. Uh, the North says, "Look, they've uh, attacked our our, our, our massacred our black soldiers, or they won't exchange them." Uh, and look how bravely the black soldiers fought the the south points to the horrible northern practice of using uh rebellious slaves uh, to fight against them, so everybody 's talking about it, mm-hmm. and then uh then it goes away then right. uh there's this uh, what happened to the battle after the war
3: well um, it, it's quickly overshadowed by Vicksburg and Gettysburg, of course, which is just a mm-hmm. month later. Um, the site of the battlefield itself was washed away in the early 20th century, and so there's literally, you know, it literally vanished. And um, you know, now and then uh, you can you can find it through the years in uh, various works about black troops during the war, but uh, but there's not there really was not a lot out there about it, and I think its significance was was overlooked or or not fully understood, and, um, you know, I felt like it was a, a very, the more I looked into it, the more I was convinced it was a
2: very important story worth telling. Well, there were some people who remembered it. You found uh, a few soldier notes and and uh, one diarist, uh, Kate Stone, a civilian who, uh, who kept a memory of this alive, mm-hmm. but it sounds like it almost died out with The Last Veteran's.
3: Yes, yes. And I think, you know, I think there's a number of factors at work. Um, you know, at that in that particular region of Louisiana, um, after the war, everybody was just trying to put their lives back together. Um, and you have, you know, it's a very rural area, um, so it's not like Vicksburg across the way, where uh, you know, you have an enormous battle with the landscape still scarred and so forth. Um, it's, it's really, you know, it, it quickly passes into non-existence. And, um, so, uh, it is something that, you know, was, was kind of lost to history for a time.
2: You know, one of the, the ways, obviously, the people best recover history and, and, uh, remember it is is visiting the site. and as you point out, there is no site that the uh, the terrain is simply gone. Uh, so is there any memorial, any marker anywhere uh, to remind people that this happened?
3: Uh, yes, uh, that that has happened in recent years, I would say over the past say twenty years or so. Um, part of that a lot of that has been uh, taken on by Vicksburg National Park. Um, There is a small plot of land on the Louisiana side of the river that is owned by the park. It's known as the Grant's Canal Unit because there is a section of the canal that is still there. Um, But they do interpret Milliken's Bend. There is uh, some signage there that tells the story of that battle. Um, Out on a little country road not far from Tallulah, Louisiana, um, there is... Uh, a historical marker, but it's not something that you would find unless you know what you're looking for and where it is. Um, there is the Hermion Museum located in Tallulah. They do some. They have information about Millican's Bend. Uh, and now, in the visitor center at Vicksburg uh, Park, there's also a panel about Millikan's Bend and um, the actions of the the Mississippi. Uh, black regiments are commemorated in a statue in the park. So there is a a lot more attention that has taken place over the the past decade or two.
2: Did anyone who fought there go on to to do anything else that's been remembered?
3: Um, Well, uh, you have uh, Richard Taylor. uh, I would say not too much, because Richard Taylor was not actually there Mm-hmm. Um, he was, you know, in, in the Confederate chain of command. Um, the the Union officers, uh, they, you know, like many of the veterans, uh, went on to, um, you know, Isaac Shepard went on to uh, serve as Adjutant General of the state of Missouri after the war. Um, Cyrus Sears, who was an officer with the 11th Louisiana, um, was later awarded the Medal of Honor, not for his actions at Millikan's Bend, but uh, for his actions at Corinth. Um, and so, you know, there were there were those sorts of things, but but not uh, not major prominence, I would say.
2: So it it really uh, did run the risk of being lost lost to time. Uh, we're running very short of time. Uh, there was one other. Angle of the battle that that you uh, talk about that I thought was quite interesting, which was how heavy the casualties were on the Union side. Yeah. Uh, they, they, they these regiments lost lost a lot of men, uh, over thirty percent in some cases.
3: That's right, and and on both sides there were many companies that lost up to fifty percent casualties. Um, and uh, the Ninth Louisiana, which is a Union regiment, black regiment. Um, had 66 killed in action, which was the highest loss in a single engagement during the entire Vicksburg campaign.
2: So you then have both sides afterwards saying that this proves our theory that uh, either that black troops can fight bravely or that the black, uh, the former slaves are savages uh, who will fight hand to hand. No stereotype. Goes unproven by the right statistic, I suppose. Oh, correct. Uh, well, this is, is a really interesting book. Uh, uh, you know, as I said, there are there are battle books that come out every week, and uh, but there aren't always battle books that come out that, that shed a new light, uh, either on a forgotten battle or, in this case, a whole forgotten uh, angle of of this of the Vicksburg campaign and the role of black soldiers there. Uh, and listeners, you'll, you'll, you'll find it enlightening, uh, as I did, I'm sure, uh, to, to read Milliken's Bend, a Civil War Battle in History and Memory by Linda Barnacle, who has been our guest tonight. Linda, thank you for being on the show.
3: Thank you so very much for having me.
2: And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.